my heart fails to break at the sight of unbearable pain and this tired old world is having its way. And if I know what I ought to do in a given situation, if I see the action I should take in order to be true to the deepest thing in me and I don't do it, the light that is in me becomes darkness. It's difficult. It's difficult to know what is the right thing. It's difficult to know when to hang with the people who make our community, the people we've always known, the people that we are like, and when to put on shoes even though no one else is. We get it confused in congregations sometimes. There's an unspoken but powerful understanding in many Unitarian Universalist congregations that political Republicans had best keep their heads low if they want to survive. And it's more true, I think, than most of us would like to admit. And now that the budget is under discussion, it's becoming true again. And I'm remembering 25 years ago when I was serving a congregation in Michigan. There was a closet Republican in the congregation. He was a highly respected leader. He was president of the congregation. I couldn't vote. I'm a resident alien. If I did, I doubt if I ever would have voted on the same ticket as Jim. But I'll always remember and treasure the deep political conversations that I had with him. Because those conversations were always based on our religious principles. How we understood our religious principles could be most effectively lived out in the body politic. And on at least two issues, my discussions with Jim caused me to change my position. He convinced me, absolutely, that the two most effective programs that this country could institute to counteract the increasing divide between the rich and the poor, this was back in 1980s, were, first of all, a universal draft, requiring all people to give at least two years of military or social service to the country, and secondly, compulsory school uniforms for all children. And I invite you to talk with me later about how Jim convinced me of the wisdom of these positions. But the important thing is, it was never a matter of what party he voted for, but rather how he understood his vote would promote his religious principles that formed the basis of our conversations. It turned out that Jim left the congregation. He came to the point that he got tired of being in the closet. And he never saw himself as becoming a card-carrying vocal member of the Democratic Party. Happily, he left the congregation to form a new Unitarian Universalist congregation in a neighboring town, 
but was founded on more accepting and embracing principles. But you know, I have to wonder how often we do drive people away by mistaking our principles and our values with political platforms. You see, currently, to my knowledge, we have no Republican Unitarian Universalists in the U.S., House of Representatives, or the Senate. The last one that I know of finally got voted out in 2006. That was Nancy Johnson from Hartford, Connecticut, the lone UU Republican voice in the whole House of Representatives. Her position on choice and gay-lesbian issues were in line with her UU values. They contradicted those of the Republican Party, but she put on her shoes, and she eventually lost the race in 2006. This saddens me deeply. How can we ever hope to influence any group with which we're no longer in dialogue? I think that the questions that need to be asked are not only can Republicans feel welcome in UU congregations, and if not, why not, but also can Unitarian Universalists feel welcome in the Republican Party, and if not, why not? Because for most of this country's history, it was difficult to be at home in a UU congregation if you weren't a Republican. For most of this country's history, our elected leaders as Unitarian Universalists have been largely Republican. All of our Unitarian Universalist presidents have been Republicans. The last one, a century ago, it's true, that was Taft. The Republican Party was born of a rift over the question of abolition. The political questions that drew the more radical Unitarians and Universalists to the Republican Party in the 19th century were things like abolishment of slavery, reconstruction efforts, public education, women's suffrage. The Republican Party fought for ideals that were embedded in the country's creed, the Declaration of Independence. They fought for liberty and justice and equality, and they demanded that the government serve the well-being of all people and respect the innate worth and dignity of every person. So, it isn't easy to be a Unitarian Universalist in the Republican Party. I hope that it will become easier for Unitarian Universalists to be Republicans so that it might be easier for us to be in Republican parties. Because what's true is the platform shift. And I believe that any religious people are on perilous ground when they fall into a trap of being more easily defined by their political affiliation than they are by their religious values. And in my reading of our history, political affiliation becomes a litmus test in our congregations only in those times 
that we start identifying ourselves more as an alternative to religion than as a religious alternative. Many of you attended the movie, The Education of Shelby Knox, on Friday. How many of you here? It was very powerful. The story of a Lubbock, Texas high school student who begins advocating for comprehensive sex education in the public schools after she learns that the school board's abstinence-only stance has produced teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted disease rates that are among the highest in the nation. Shelby herself took the no-sex-until-marriage pledge, but she says, when accused of advocating immorality, how dare you impugn my morals? She is clear that her personal choices in her life are based on her religious convictions, but she understands that the job of public schools is to provide students with life skills and information they need to deal with everyday life, and that pregnancy and sexually transmitted disease rates made it clear that they are not doing that effectively. Well, Shelby's parents, committed Southern Baptist and staunch Republicans, in the movie struggle mightily to understand Shelby and to support her. The problem is it's just not what anybody they know would do. At one point they say, well, I'm sure that there are some Democrats in the town. They do wish that Shelby wouldn't be so visible, so different. They don't want her to be the face that's associated with her causes. It was hard enough when she was advocating for comprehensive sex education, but then she stood on the side of the gays and lesbians who wanted to form a gay-straight alliance in the high school. Her parents joked that they would have to march carrying a sign saying, We're not gay. But the students that had stood up with her on the sex education issue were also unwilling to take the heat. Their hard-earned support they felt would be in jeopardy if they went too far. And so in one scene we watch a devout, young, heterosexual, Christian, loving daughter of supported staunch Baptist and Republican parents living her pledge of abstinence until marriage, carrying a hand-lettered placard saying, God loves everyone, being confronted by other Christians carrying huge signs proclaiming that AIDS cures homosexuality. For Shelby, the issues were clear, safety and fairness. She didn't ask simply, why don't we? Why don't we? She put on the shoes, not because she was a Republican, not because she was a Baptist, but because she believed it was the right thing to do. And so now we're facing a budget. Budgets are moral documents. Say that with me. Budgets are moral documents. Every budget, household or otherwise, is a moral document. They state the values and the priorities of the family, the church, the organization, the country. And so when you look at a budget, you need to do a values audit, a moral audit of priorities. And Jim Wallace asks, what things are revealed as most important? What things are less important? 
America's religious communities are required to ask of any federal budget what happens to the poor and the most vulnerable. What becomes of the nation's poorest children in these critical decisions? The values of the American people should also be applied to the budget, such as fairness, fiscal, personal, and social responsibility, balancing important and different priorities. Jim Wallace says, and I have to agree with him, that politicians will say lots of things in the coming weeks, but they should be pushed relentlessly to address the bottom line question. Do they believe that a fairer distribution of capitalism's bounty is essential to repairing a sick economy? Everything else is a subsidiary issue. The fundamental moral question, says Wallace, in the upcoming budget debate is whether to begin to reverse the rapid and massive increase in American inequality, which has grown over the past 30 years and dramatically increased during the past eight. That religious position can be seen as a political platform by many people. May this congregation never be one that falls into that trap. It is a moral stance, a religious stance, and it's independent of political affiliation. I've just come back from what was called a living legacy tour of 40 Unitarian Universalists who um, traveled through the southern states visiting sites where we were involved in the civil rights movement. We started out with Jason Shelton speaking and singing with us about the music of the movement. He said, the places you're going to visit are a landscape with soundtrack. That was my first learning of the place of faith in the movement. I learned how songs evolved from spirituals that talked about freedom and justice in an afterlife to songs that demanded freedom and justice now. Kumbaya had a whole new meaning. When we started listening to it, sitting in the church where four young girls were killed, saying... Churches are burning, Lord. Come by here. There's been a shooting, Lord. Come by here. It became a song of prayer. No longer a hippie song. And then we toured Selma Selma, with Joanne Bland. I have a rock. She told me I couldn't keep this rock if I didn't keep it solidly and seriously, if I didn't understand the importance of it. It comes from the housing development where she grew up, three blocks from where Jane Reeves was killed, where she was first arrested at the age of eight. She was 11 when she was chased off the bridge on Bloody Sunday. We walked down the street to the site where three ministers, Olson, Miller, and Reeves, were attacked on their way from dinner to Brown Chapel to hear Dr. King talk to them about what they'd be doing the next day. Reverend Olson was with us on the trip. The ministers could have turned left. 
but they, the way they came, but they turned right because it was quicker. Therein lay the problem. They walked through the white neighborhood. Jim says that he'll never, ever get the sound of a baseball hat bat hitting Jim Reed's head out of his mind. He'll never forget the feeling as he said, oh, please don't, as they came after him and he lost his glasses but escaped relatively unscathed. That right turn instead of the left one was part of what Joanne talked to me about. Only it wasn't in that context. She said, hundreds of white folk came down here to help us. It was so wonderful. These folks with nothing, with nothing, living in this housing development, said, you know, these folks came with their bedrolls, and they were just going to sleep outside or on the church stoops. And we tried to explain. They didn't understand. You'll get killed. You'll get killed. And she said, it's just burned in my mind, we all knew you don't lock your doors at night until every white person is safe inside someone's home. And I wondered what white communities I've ever known of who have said that. When in Minneapolis have we heard, don't lock your doors till every homeless person is warm and safe? Clark spoke to a number of young people in a sojourner's group. He said that he didn't go, he didn't know that he was making history, he didn't know that history would be made, he just went because it seemed the right thing to do, even if it wasn't the most popular. And he got a standing ovation from the children at the end of the story, and he was asked, how does this story relate to the young people? And he said... The lesson is that when you see something that's an injustice, something that is wrong, say something. In my case, it led to a turning point in American history, but I didn't do it. I was just there. I didn't know it would be historic. The wonder is when you do something, when you step up to an injustice, you never know what might happen that's really good. You never know what effect you might have. It can be wondrous. Shelby was a high school student. Jim was in his young 20s. Clark Olson was in his young 20s. Charles Blackburn, who was also with us, had been six months in the ministry the first time he was thrown in jail. (laughs) The congregation learned to deal with it. One person after another... A young man hugs Clark and says, any white person who stepped out to help the community was in danger. You're daring because you were willing to help the community. I'm glad your passion helped push you past your fear. Charles Blackburn talks about the white activists in Montgomery who were marching and what a huge number of us were Unitarian Universalists day before Bloody Sunday. But when they went back to the church, the preacher asked, Where have you been? Where have you been? 
I'm so glad you're here, but where have you been? And so we visited the graves. We visited the daughters of the young men who were killed, who never met their father. James Earl Cheney's grave site has to be held up with great iron bars because it's perpetually being knocked over. He couldn't be buried with the two white men who died with him. But on his gravesite it says, there are those who are alive yet will never live. There are those who are dead yet will live forever. Great deeds inspire and encourage the living. I was proud to be a Unitarian Universalist on that trip. People knew who we were. Fully half of the martyrs were Unitarians and Universalists during that bloody summer with the march to, to Montgomery. And it's not a matter of party politics. It's not a matter of party platforms. It's not a matter of block voting. It has everything to do with our values, our principles, our commitment to the common good and to the commonwealth. We need to put on the shoes. We need to wear the shoes that we know we need to put on. Recently, a colleague of mine posted a following plea on the minister's chat line. She said, if love is really the doctrine of our church, why shouldn't we be trying to develop and practice ways of talking about politics lovingly? Can't we find a mode of discourse that bashes nobody, that is proactively positive rather than reactively negative? Can we not develop a method of discussing our differences that increases love? And she reminds us that Thich Nhat Hanh said, the American peace movement knows how to write a protest letter, but has never learned how to write a love letter. The people of the civil rights movement knew how. They put their lives on the line to make their dreams of a brighter future see the light of day. I pray that when we are called, that we will put on our shoes also. And I pray that we will realize that we of privilege are being called right now.